Well, brothers and sisters, it is, a, oh boy, it is an absolute joy to be able to open up God's Word with you once again. This really is the highlight of our week as Christians, is it not? To gather under the preaching of God's Word and then to gather around the table of the Lord and to, to eat the bread and drink the cup. This is God's means of grace to us, and so let us thank God for it. Please, if you would, stand uh, and open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We find ourselves, as we continue walking through uh, 1 Timothy, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And as is our custom, I am going to read God's word in your hearing. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what God says. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, Taken up in glory. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seat, brothers and sisters. I want you to be thinking about this for a brief moment. What is a church? If someone was to corner you and and twist your arm behind your back and say, Sir, brother, sister, ma'am, what is a church? How would you answer that question? Some people are prone to associate the church with this idea of a building. In other words, and, and we sometimes speak like this, right? We, we evangelize around the church. So I, people tend to think of the church in terms of brick and mortar. Others sort of think of the church more as like a social connection. It's a place to make friends, to build relationships, perhaps even make business contacts, Still more, and this is becoming increasingly popular, there are those who are under the impression that the church exists simply to facilitate their personal worship experience. In other words, church, it's about them and their spiritual or emotional experience. They they think in a lot of ways that, that the church is sort of where you go to get your spiritual high For the week. As we're we're thinking about this, maybe another way to tackle it, again, this idea of what is a church, is, is to ask questions like this Well, what's the purpose of a church? What's the nature of a church? And when we think about these questions, we have to resist the temptation to succumb to our own fleshly appetites or to listen to the words of the culture around us. When we're thinking about how we define a church or ourselves or our world for that matter, we must be a people who yield to Christ. And we must yield to Christ because Christ is Lord over all. He's Lord over me, he's Lord over you, and he's Lord over the church. Which means it is Christ who defines, again, who we are and what the church is. And as we'll see this morning, in defining the church, Christ has told us that really the essence of the church revolves around her character, her conduct, and her confession. 
When it comes to this idea of the character of the church, I would invite you to notice those three glorious descriptions that are found in verse 15. What is the church? Well, Paul answers, it is the household of God. That's the language of verse 15, isn't it? The household of God. And brothers and sisters, what is being expressed here is that we are, in fact, brothers and sisters. This idea of a family, it's a, it's a common and, and really dominant metaphor that runs throughout the pages of Scripture. We are a family, but we're not just any family. We are God's family. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. God really is our Father. And brothers and sisters, God is our Father because He has redeemed us to Himself through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so catch this, if you are joined to Christ by faith, and I am joined to Christ by faith, you know what that means? It means that in some way, you and I are joined together. I I hate to break it to you, but it means that you can't be a member of God's family and not be members with each other. You, You can't have God as your father without having me as your brother. And I'm sorry about that, but that's the nature of a family. We pick our friends, we're stuck with our family. And in this family, again, I would remind you that God is our Father. And and to make a, a quick connection here in the passage, which will unfold in a couple of moments, just as earthly fathers have rules and authority in their homes... Well, so God our Father has rules and authority in this household and in the church. The punchline, of course, is that it is God then who defines not just what the church is, but how the church should operate. The second glorious description immediately follows the first. We're told in verse 15 again, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This is the church of the the living God, no doubt in contrast with the lifeless, dead idols that were all around the Christians in Ephesus and that are all around us. And so God is the the living God. But there's a little bit more there, and, and Calvin does a good job of putting his thumb on it. Calvin says, there are good reasons why God should call the church his house, for not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. That's what the church is, brothers and sisters. It is the dwelling place of God on earth. Ephesians 2.22 says it this way, In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So catch this. We are part of God's family. That is true. But we are not stuck off somewhere in the mother-in-law suite on the back 40, sort of isolated all by ourselves. No. The picture is that the church, the the gathering of God's people on God's day, right here, right now, what is taking place, this is where Christ uniquely promises to meet us. We are right now in God's house, and we are worshiping, not just in the presence of one another, but we are worshiping in the presence of God. 
This is what we do. We gather to pray and praise. We gather to receive the word and to partake of the sacrament. And as we do this, God has determined in his grace to take up his residence here in us and among us and through us. So this is not just God's house, but God's in the house. He's here dwelling with us. And again, sort of the punchline, this should affect how we conduct ourselves, right? If Christ is truly here, well, that is certainly going to, again, change everything about our gathering, right? Paul's not done, though. The third description of the church comes at the end of verse 15. We are told that the church is also a pillar and buttress of the truth. And here Paul is employing some some graphic architectural metaphors, ones that would have certainly resonated with the Christians in Ephesus. And and I say that because, remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, and, and Timothy is stationed in Ephesus serving that congregation. Well, here's what you need to be reminded of. Ephesus was home to the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. And this temple was altogether glorious. It was so glorious, in fact, that it was regarded at the time as one of the seven wonders of the world. We, we can scarcely imagine not just how beautiful this temple was, but how massive it was. Just to give you a little bit of an idea, it boasted over 100 columns around it, all of which were six stories tall. And what these massive columns did is they supported the temple's massive roof, a roof that was made up, composed of this shiny marble. It really would be a beautiful and awe-inspiring sight as the sun reflected off of it. But here's the point. That temple, as glorious as it might have appeared, it was empty. It was dead. It was a cadaver. And that's because it was dedicated to a false, to a dead God. But the true church, the church of Jesus Christ... The church that is the the household of God, the church of the living God. This house, this gathering, this is where God resides. And it's got nothing to do with the zip code. It's got nothing to do with the paint on the walls. It's got nothing to do with any of that. God has promised to reside here because his people are here. And the point of 1 Timothy 3.15 is that like the temple of Diana... This temple, too, it has pillars and a foundation. We are told in verse 15 that the church is the buttress of the truth, or we would say maybe the, the foundation of the truth. And, and we all have a pretty good understanding of what foundations do, right? They, they support something. They hold something up. In this case, a buttress stabilizes the building. And as you know, a structure is only as good and reliable as its foundation. And so what Paul is saying to us here, what God is saying to us, is that the church has 
the truth of God's word as its foundation. This is what is underneath of us. This is what is holding us up. This is what the church rests upon. It rests upon the word of God. But the church also has a pillar. We are told it is the pillar of the truth. What do pillars do? Well, if foundations go down, pillars go up. Think back for a moment in your mind's eye, again, to Diana's temple. Those massive pillars, they held up the roof. They thrust the magnificent temple vertical so that everybody could see it. Well, beloved, the same is true for us. We are to be those who proclaim the word of God. The church, we are told, it should be a place of salt and light. The word of God, the truth, it is to be heralded from us and proclaimed by us. And it too should display the glory of God. Just as the pillars of Diana's temple displayed her so-called glory. In all of this, don't miss the connection. Don't, don't miss how intimately connected the church is to truth. Notice in our passage that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, the church is defined by its relationship to the truth, to the truth of God's word, meaning that it is both the responsibility and the privilege for the church to guard the truth to uphold the truth, to proclaim the truth, and to live in light of the truth. We understand this, that the winds of culture are going to blow. And of course, the waves of society, they're going to come rolling up and crashing upon our shores. But in the midst of such wind and waves, the church must, I repeat, must hold tenaciously to the word of God. After all, that is what makes the church the church. We are the only institution in all of creation that has been entrusted with the word of God, the very gospel of our salvation. So to return to our previous question, what is the church? Well, here, are something, here is something of the character of the church. The church is a family. We are adopted by God. And because God is our Father, He orders things in a certain way. The church is also the dwelling place of the true and living God. And because God lives in our midst... We should conduct ourselves appropriately. And the church has also been given the privilege and responsibility to promote and protect the gospel. We are to be an immovable and intractable witness to the world. Now, I hope you're seeing some of the connection here. I hope you're seeing that because of this, because of the character of the church... God expects us to live a certain way. Because this is who we are, this is how we should live. In other words, the character of the church determines the conduct of the church. This whole thing comes to light in verses 14 and 15. 
We're told, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, what? You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Let let me just pause very quickly and say something, and and that is this. Do not, Christian, fall into this, this modern trap. And that modern trap is this. Christ doesn't care how you live. That's the modern trap. The modern trap goes something like this. You should just follow your heart. The modern trap would say something like this. Love is love. The modern trap might be expressed this way. All that really matters is that you believe the right things. That you confess the right things. Have you been baptized? Do you know the Apostles' Creed? Well, as long as you've got those boxes checked, you can sort of do whatever you want with the rest of your life. Brothers and sisters, God's household has a certain order to it. There is a way, verse 15, Christians ought to behave in the house of God. And I think that, that we all sort of get this at one level or another. Just, just as you have a certain order in your home, just as there are certain rules and expectations, well, so God does in His. What are these expectations, you ask? Well, put your eyes back up on verse 14. Because Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. So so what we need to do is zero in on these things because it is these things that define how we ought to behave in the household of God. So what are these things? And these things look back to all that has been said since chapter 2, verse 1. That's what 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 have been about, right? They revolve around proper order and conduct in the church. So allow me to refresh your memory. We have learned that a healthy church, it has elders, deacons, and members. That's really the DNA of a church. And the elders, they are called to shepherd the church, and these men must meet certain qualifications. The deacons of the church, they meet the physical needs of the church, and likewise, they need to meet certain qualifications as well. And then you have the members of the church, and and they are to love and serve and encourage and correct one another, so so that everybody, the elders and the deacons and the church, everybody is growing up together in love and unity. That's 1 Timothy 3, right? In addition, Scripture tells us that that men have certain responsibilities, as do women. Men, we are told in 1 Timothy 2, are specifically called to refrain from anger and lead in the church. Women, they are specifically called to refrain from putting too much of an emphasis upon their outward appearance, and instead to give their attention to the domestic sphere, to their their home, their, their children. According to Scripture, this all matters to God. According to Scripture, God has something to say about, again, verse 15, how we ought to behave in the household of God. 
Which means that if you, if you pull back a little bit, if you just zoom out just a hair, God cares how the church gathers, how she prays, how she presents herself, how she relates to the world. God cares how the church thinks about life and worship and the home and the church. This, this all matters. Again, that's 1 Timothy 2. And the ballast for this ship, the church, is sound doctrine, true theology, right teaching. The church must guard the gospel entrusted to her. Rather than seeking to say more or less than Scripture, the church's responsibility is to remain faithful to what Christ has said. And anything more or anything less will inevitably put the church on a collision course with her Lord. This, you remember, is what makes the false teachers of 1 Timothy 1 so dangerous. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus would say. And they have deviated from the truth of God's word. They have devoted themselves to that which is not part of God's word. And in doing so, they have distracted God's people from God's word. Which means, and and please see this here, we're now coming full circle. It is imperative then that the church remain a conscious pillar and buttress of the truth. So in short, when Paul speaks of these things in verse 14, when he instructs us on how we ought to behave in the household of God, verse 15. Please hear this. He's not talking at all about whether it is permissible or not for you to listen to secular music or drink an IPA or wear flip-flops to church. That is not at all what is going on here. What he is talking about is the necessity of right doctrine, right gender relationships, and right leadership. That is, at its core, what marks out the conduct of the church. And again, God is the one who gets to determine these things because He is the head of this house. He lives in this house, and He is the one who determines truth for this house. Now, speaking of truth and right doctrine... Did you notice how seamlessly Paul moves in our passage this morning from the character and the conduct of the church to her confession? Do you see how sort of in some way verse 16 just sort of creeps out of nowhere? All of a sudden, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then the rest of verse 16 is this confession of faith that comes from the early church. So the question here is what accounts for this seamless transition? What's the the connection in Paul's mind between verses 14 and 15 and then somehow verse 16? And I think that the connection is this. The church is, to use the language of verse 15, the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. And therefore, the church must protect and promote the truth. But what is the truth? Enter verse 16. 
Because verse 16, this confession, it is a confession of the truth. Let me just pause very briefly and say, church, this is the great aid. This is the great design of creeds and confessions and catechisms. They are shorthand, summary, in, in summary form, the, the, this encapsulation of the truth of God's word. This is why we do catechesis. This is why we subscribe to confessions. This is why I'm going to get you to confess creeds in the future. Because it's in the Bible. And because it's imperative for us to to understand the truth that has been entrusted to us. So Paul is saying something like this, if I can paraphrase. Timothy, I've told you what the church is. I've told you about her character. And I've shared with you how, how Christians are supposed to live, right? The conduct of the church. And now, let me impress upon you what Christians must believe. That the church's confession. But before we actually get into that confession, let me clarify something. We need to clarify something because Paul introduces this confession in verse 16 by referring, it to, refer, referring to it as the mystery of godliness. And I think that for most of us, when you and I tend to hear or think of mysteries, we tend to think that we need the help of someone like Sherlock Holmes, right? Because in our sort of vernacular, a mystery is some sort of knot that needs to be unraveled. Right? It, it, it's something that, that we can't discern or understand. It's tricky, it's spooky, something like that. But that's not how Paul uses the word. For Paul, a mystery is something that was once hidden or concealed, but now it has been brought to light. Or to be more specific, a mystery is a redemptive reality revealed in Christ. Let me say that again. It's a redemptive reality revealed in Christ. If you can, go back in your time machine. Imagine that you're living in the days of of Adam or Abraham or Moses or David. Think of the the truth that had been revealed, the promises, the, the covenant. You have to understand that to our forefathers, a lot of this stuff was fuzzy to them. I don't know if you've ever done this. It it would be like taking someone else's glasses and and putting them on, right? You you, you can see a little bit, but but most of it's pretty blurry. And if you keep those glasses on too long, you're going to give yourself a headache. This is sort of what it was like to to be an Adam or an Abraham or a Moses or a David. But then, in Christ, everything becomes clear. This this mystery is now revealed. You now have 20-20 vision. You, you, You now see perfectly. You can see how all the types and the shadows of the old covenant, they find their their fulfillment and their substance in Jesus Christ. I think we fail quite often to understand the the very privileged position that we have to live on this side of Christ, to live on this side of the new covenant. Do you understand that, that, that by the grace of God, we now have a better vision of Christ 
and his love and his law and his spirit and his gospel. Before Christ, you had truth, of course, but it was shrouded in darkness. Now that same truth, it hasn't changed. Now that same truth has been unveiled by the light. So church, what is this mystery that has been made known? And the mystery that has been made known is contained in this confession. That's what verse 16 is. And if you put your eyes on it, you'll see that there are six clauses or, or six lines, really. And, and what they do is they, they characterize and they celebrate Christ and His greatness. Which means, I have to say this, before we even get into the confession, the confession is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our story. It's not about our truth. The confession tells the story of our Savior. It tells the story of Christ. It's all about who He is and all about what He has done. So brothers and sisters, as Christians, what do we confess? Well, to begin with, He was, verse 16, manifested in the flesh. Christ, our Lord, was manifested in the flesh. And and this is referring to that wonderful truth that we celebrate each and every Christmas, the very incarnation of the Son of God. When Scripture says He was manifested, it doesn't mean that He just sort of appeared to be this way or that He was trying to juke us or, or fake us out or anything like that. It has more the flavor of that he took on or that he assumed. And what he took on, what Christ assumed in the incarnation was our flesh, or maybe better said, human nature. It's a truth that our finite minds cannot fully grasp. But the eternal Son of God, in that moment, he became the God-man. As one writer has put it, Christ stood at the rim of the universe and dove headlong past a million stars through the Milky Way and into the womb of the Virgin Mary where he swam and grew until his birth that cold winter's night. The second line of this great confession says, he was vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated there, it means to demonstrate to be morally right or to prove something to be true. And so, the Holy Spirit, He did something to vindicate, to demonstrate, to prove that Christ is exactly who He said He is. What did the Spirit do, you ask? Well, the Spirit, we are told, raised Christ from the dead. Romans 1.4 testifies, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And so by the Spirit doing this work, by the Spirit vindicating Christ, it has forever put to rest any doubt about who Christ is or what Christ has done. 
We should view the resurrection of Christ, among other things, as something of a stamp of approval from God Himself upon Christ's mission and ministry. Consider this. Christ claimed to be divine. He supposedly performed all sorts of miracles. He, he actually went so far as to say that He spoke the very words of God. He had the audacity to say that He and He alone could forgive your sins. According to Christ, without repenting of your sin and without trusting in Him, think about this, without trusting in Him and Him alone, that you will perish in your sin under the wrath of God. Christ even went so far as to say that it would be His voice that you hear that calls your body forth from the grave. Those are quite the claims. Christ either died as a substitute for sin as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, or He was just some Random rabbi who got caught up in the machinations of the Jews and died on a Roman cross like countless others had done. So which is it? Is it fact or fiction? Is it, is it true or false? And church, what God's word tells us is that we can stake our life upon the veracity of Christ. Some people tend to think of faith as sort of a, a blind leap into the darkness. But that's not the faith that we see that the Bible calls forth from us. What the Bible tells us is that Christ got up from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit. So that when that corpse emerged from the tomb on resurrection morning, it was proof positive, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Christ is both Lord and Savior. And so faith is not closing our eyes and just putting a foot out. But faith is embracing who Christ is and what He has done because we have all the reason in the world to do so. He was vindicated by the Spirit. As we continue to follow the life of Christ in this great creed, we are told that He was seen by angels. Christ was born. Christ was resurrected. Christ was witnessed. Think about it this way, church. Do you realize that the angels, they have really, in a lot of ways, accompanied Christ from the very beginning? Since His incarnation, the angels have been there? The angels announced Mary being with child. The angels sang at his birth. The angels ministered to him in his hour of temptation there in the wilderness. The angels guarded his empty tomb. The angels witnessed his ascension into glory. The angels have been there every step of the way. And their presence testifies to the supernatural character of who Christ is and what Christ has done for sinners like us. 
Fourth, we confess Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Let's be very clear here. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, none of this was meant to be kept a secret. None of it was ever intended to just sort of be whispered in the corners. This is a message of good news. And this good news is to be heralded far and wide. And of course, that's exactly what we see take place, don't we? From the early church, the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Which means, beloved, this gospel is not restricted to a particular people. No. The Bible tells us that this is a message of hope and salvation for sinners. And since each and every one of us, since we're all sinners, all people need to hear this message proclaimed to them. So as this message goes out, what sort of effect has it had? What has its reception been? The fifth line of this great confession answers. Christ has been believed on in the world. Beloved, hear me well. The gospel was a success. It is a success and it will be a success. The nations are flocking to Christ. The knowledge of the glory of Christ is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Those from every tribe and language and people and nation, they are in these very moments being drawn to the Savior. I got a text from a dear brother just a couple of months ago over summer. Some of you know Pastor Jason Upchurch. He was a member of this congregation many moons ago. He has since left our church and he's gone up to Deer Park just outside of Spokane to pastor a congregation up there. That congregation is Redeemer Bible Church. We, we pray for them pretty regularly around here. Well, I got a text from him. He was at a Christian youth camp. He was working a couple of weekends over the summer to help out. And he sends me this picture. And this picture, it appeared to be just tons of middle-aged and high school-aged students. So he sends me that picture. And then he texted me this. And, and I'm just going to read it to you. This is what he texted. Can you imagine telling Peter on the day after Pentecost that one day, on the precise opposite point of the planet, there'd be more kids paying to hear the gospel than were just hiding with you in that upper room a few days ago. And that they could go to any number of dozens of churches within 15 minutes who faithfully preach Jesus and Him crucified. You see, if you spend all day watching Fox News, you are going to have this tunnel vision. You don't realize that this room is hot and it is packed out. We are thousands of years away and thousands of miles away and language and culture away. And we confess the same Christ that the early church did. And you think we're losing? This is victory. Christ has been believed on among the nations. You are evidence of that. Right? 
Like, we are living and breathing and moving evidences of the fact that God is triumphing in the world through His gospel. Take heart then, Christian. Rejoice. Know for certain that the purposes of God will not, and dare I say, cannot fail. The Father has determined to exalt His Son in this world. And He has. And He is. And He will. That is our assurance. Finally, this confession ends in the sixth line. With Christ was taken up in glory. Don't make the mistake of thinking that our Lord and Savior, that He he retired somewhere on the shores of Galilee after a long and prosperous itinerant ministry. No. He died as a cursed payment for sin. He was raised from the dead to ensure that each and every one of you will be raised from the dead. And then He has ascended to the Father's right hand to be installed not as King of the church, but King of the whole world. He really was, as the ancient confession puts it, taken up in glory. And I would submit to you that it is altogether possible that the ascension of Christ, His being taken up in glory, that this is perhaps our Lord's most neglected work. Think about it. The incarnation gets Christmas. Christ's death has Good Friday. The resurrection has Easter. But for some reason, as evangelicals, we either sort of forget or just dismiss this idea of Christ's ascension. But what I want you to understand is that the ascension, when Christ takes His seat upon His throne, in a lot of ways, that really is the crescendo of Christ's work. And I say that because from His throne, Christ is right now in these moments interceding for you. We are told that He ever lives to make intercession for His people. It's from that same throne that He judges. It's from that same throne, Psalm 110, that He makes His enemies His footstool. It's from His throne and His presence on that throne that guarantees our eternal life. Brothers and sisters, it's from that throne that Christ rules and reigns for our good and for His glory. And it's from that throne that Christ promises one day to return and to make all things right and to consummate His kingdom on earth. So Christians, take courage. Christ is not now dead. How could He be? We are told in God's Word that death could not hold Him. So Christ is not dead, but neither is He a wall. As Christians, we tend to think, we know Christ isn't dead, but I think He might be sleeping at the wheel. Not at all. He who is the eternal Son of God, He who took on flesh for us, He is now the same Christ who is occupying the throne for us. That's the throne He earned. It's His by right. Christ is the King of the world. And He's also our Savior. Our king shed his blood to make his enemies his friends. More than to make us his family. 
So, beloved, this is our confession. This is why I say that really, this is the confession of every true Christian, right? Christ was born, Christ died for our sins. Christ was raised from the dead, Christ is proclaimed, Christ is believed on, and Christ is enthroned in heaven. This is our confession. In fact, it's not just our confession. This is our very life, isn't it? These aren't just sort of words printed on a page. This is our hope. If you are a Christian, this is what you have staked your very life upon. I asked earlier this morning, what is the church? I hope that we now can see how to answer that question biblically. The church is the, church is the people of God called forth from darkness and death to light and life. We are His and He is ours. That's who we are. That's our identity. We are in Christ. That's our character. A church also yields to God's word and seeks to obey him. Not because we think that if we check all the right boxes and do all the right things, that we can somehow curry favor with God. But, but, but this is who we are. This is who we want to be. We want to please our Father. We, we want to express our gratitude by loving him and by obeying him. That's our conduct. And a church believes and loves and defends and proclaims and cherishes and rests on the very gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our confession. Join with me as we pray for God's help. Father, we are a people who so often know the right things to say. We know how to cross T's and dot I's. We know how to put on a smile. We know what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, and when we're supposed to do it. But the truth is our hearts are rotten. To the core of our beings, we are wretches. And it is only by your grace that we are not as evil as we could be. It is even more so by your grace that you would call us sons and daughters, that you would give us the great joy of calling you our Father. To think that that the very Son of God shed His blood, that those were the lengths that, that, Father, You would go to by the sending of Your Son to bring us into Your family. Lord, we pray that these truths would transform our hearts, that we would really be being changed from one degree of glory to another as we fix our eyes upon Christ, as, as we look at this confession, as we see the truth and the reality of who Your Son is and what He has done on our behalf. Lord, we have a million problems in this world, a million things to cause us anxiety, to stress us out, to occupy our attention. Lord, we need Christ. Give us Christ, we pray. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.